go do something that's uncomfortable. You know, on the other side of fear lies freedom. And I truly believe that the things that scare us the most is where our purpose really lies, because that's where we're going to be challenged to grow the most. And if you continue to push yourself towards and lean into your fears, you're going to realize that they're just an illusion and you're going to grow to meet the level of why that thing scared you in the first place. And once you can kind of conquer all your fears, then you come to a place where you realize that you are the creator of your reality and nothing can kind of hold you back. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Pushups, a.k.a. Rabbi Cantlers, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I have a fun chat with Joe Hawley, a former NFL football player who played eight seasons and earned over 13 million buckaroos. Joe has an insane story of actually making it to the NFL, but had so many ups and downs along the way. I kept getting to the edge of my seat and then back down, but it's fascinating to hear his story of overcoming challenges and the unknown. He retired at 30 and gave everything up to live in a van and find himself. He's done that and has a lot of wisdom to share with us along the way. In this conversation, you're going to learn three gigantic things. Number one, behind the scenes in the NFL, including not having a backup plan. Number two, what do you do when you are not sure what to do next? And number three, how to rethink your ceilings or limitations and abilities in life. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. You can learn more about Joe. He's got two podcasts. One is Life Beyond the Game, and the other one is Quantum Coffee with Joe Hawley. He also has a men's support group for former NFL players who are transitioning to regular life called The Heart Collective. That's the H-A-R-T collective.com. Plus he's on Instagram at instagram.com slash Joe H-A-W-L-E-Y. You can find him over there. Before we dive into the show, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash okdork. I put out two to three juicy business videos every week to help people just like you on your business journey. Also, if you're a creator making software, books, or courses, go sell them right now on appsumo.com sell. It is completely free. There are certain creators that are going to be making seven figures this year just from that. It's a massive new opportunity. Really, really excited to see how it goes. You should get in early on it. That's appsumo.com sell. Also, a special pre-show shout out to all of the amazing people in our VIP private Slack group called The Underdogs. Uh, you can apply at okdork.com slash underdogs. Uh, every single one of them are amazing. They help each other and they help themselves. I love seeing all the greatness they're doing for themselves. If you want to shout out in a future episode, you should leave a review anywhere you listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. They also make me feel so damn good that you guys enjoy the show. I was told before you come, like that it was going to be fucking solved here. You got it all figured out. Who has it figured out? Because the people that seem like they have it figured out, I'm like the life coaches or the other coaches. Or just some people that have a lot of conviction. I'm like, do you really know? Yeah, I don't think they do. Does anyone? The journey continues. I don't think, I think if you're alive and you're still trying to figure it out, maybe when you die, it all makes sense. <laughs> There's like a moment they give you like a report card at the end. They're like, here's the, the, the answers to it all. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, damn, let's go do it again. Taking a step back just before we jumped into recording it. I really like just kind of as you came in the office, just like life. Uh, you're like, how's it going? I was like, well, yesterday I got a house, which I'm hell excited. Then today I... Just living again. I'm like back to, you know, quote unquote normal. Yeah. Was it exciting, the process of buying the house? I think I created a lot of drama around it. A lot of internal drama. Like, How long did it, was the process, did it take to get a house? Two years. Oh, wow. So this is a journey that you've been on. You've been looking for two years? I think I've wanted it for two years. I, you know, I, even, I went to a lot of therapy about it. <laughs> kind of strange yeah so i had to like pay a therapist to feel like i had permission to like buy some, uh, I don't. what's the story that was keeping you from buying a house were you just renting before i don't know i think there was like attachments to like how my family is like very cost conscious and like do you really need something fancy and like literally today when i was coming to the office to see you i was like you know the house isn't going to make you happy like you're going to be the same person and wherever you are yeah. Well, the space does matter. I mean, you lived in a van for, for quite a while. So. Yeah. I mean, and then I bought a house here like right before COVID and it was, I mean, obviously it's, it's a smaller house and I thought it was good, but then I ended up meeting my now wife and now I have a baby on the way. And so the house that I thought was like this really nice bachelor pad, that's like eight times the size of my van. It's like, was going to be enough space? And now I feel like the walls are closing in on me. I'm like, oh, this place is too small. I need more space. Well, that's a, did it feel like you had enough space when you lived in a van? Yeah, because I wasn't actually in the van that much. Like when I'd pull up to like a beautiful scenic nature spot, like I'd be outside. And it has a really nice full queen size bed in the back, which helped because I, I traveled around when I first hit the road for like eight months in this converted, it's called a sportsmobile, but it's like an E350 cargo van that was way smaller. And it, like the one I have now, the, the Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van is like so much more roomy. 
It's way more comfortable. It's got a full queen size bed in it. The other one was like this pop up, and I basically slept on like the roof, and it was like really hard. And I had to get like a roll out mattress that was like a whole thing. How's Joe? This show's good. A little bit overwhelmed in this moment. Got a lot of projects I'm working on. Uh, new business I'm starting up. Podcasts. Working on writing a book. So there's a lot going on. Then I have my babies doing like seven weeks. My whole reality is going to shift in a moment. A lot going on, but just trying to surrender into it and just like be very present and excited. Because when the ov- the feeling of overwhelm comes up, like realizing it's just a choice to feel that way. Because I don't have to do any of this. I can just stop. And that's the cool thing about traveling the country and like giving everything away and kind of saying goodbye to an old way of being and fully just like saying, okay, I'm going to let this go and go shift into this traveling in the country and heading into the unknown, not really knowing what. I kind of already threw it all away and went into the unknown. And so I can always have that option and understanding that that is a, like I'm choosing this life, right? It's not something I have to be controlled by. My first thought was, when did you become a man? Because you seem very, well, obviously you're big and you have a big beard, <laughs> which is which is manly, right? And you know, I'm assuming you have a penis, but you could, you know, have some. I like to tuck it under every now and then. <laughs> yeah. there, there's a company, this uh, show is sponsored by Untuck It. I don't know if you know that, those shirts, but uh, we got it sponsored. But uh, I'm curious where your journey would have gone without the NFL. And, you know, initially before that, like, you know, where you thought you became a man in this in this journey. You know, the reason I really fell in love and this is all like actually since writing my book i've been able to process a lot of my deeper stories but one of the reasons i really fell in love with the game of football is because it was where i kind of found that male mentorship and male role models to seek like love and attention from something i really deeply desired as a young kid like my dad was not a bad dude he was in my life not a bad man but just wasn't very present and he didn't have a lot of life experience to share with me and so I was seeking that role model, male mentorship. And when I start, first started playing football, like I received it. And it was like my second year in high school. My head coach came up to me. He's like, hey, you have a chance of being, you know, pretty good player. You can get a scholarship. And that's when kind of I first felt like I was getting this love and attention for, some, for performing on the field. And so I basically attached this idea of like, I'm going to go play in the NFL. And that was where the dream was born. And I'm so grateful that I had football because football really did teach me a lot about how to be a man. Uh, I had a lot of examples, really good mentors, but also guys that were good examples of what not to be as well. But just the lessons that football provided really taught me a lot. And I think it's helped me since being done playing. I retired three years ago. Just all of the lessons I learned, um, it's like such a microcosm of life, like all the adversity and challenges that you have to overcome, you know, even season to season as my whole career and even like in a game or in a practice, like how how to handle failure, how to overcome or doubt, self-limiting beliefs, fear, and just challenges. And so all of those like back to back to back really helped me mold me into who I am as a person now. And kind of relating to, I've noticed for myself, there's times lately where I'm reacting and I'm feeling sad or I'm, I'm upset about something. Almost every time the next day, I'm like, why'd you act so, why'd you get so into it? Why'd I feel so extra that, that previous day when I could have just been a little bit more like just being okay with it? So, you know, with your own journey, what were some of these, like, I guess, highs and lows throughout this, this football, football journey for you? Yeah, my career was wild. It was very up and down. You know, I played at a small school, uh, UNLV. Uh, went there because I wanted to play right away. And I played at a pretty good high school. We went to the state championship my senior year and then going to a college where we didn't really win. We didn't have a winning season the whole time I was there. So how to handle like failure and disappointment. And it was just so frustrating to me because I was one of the best players on the team. And, you know, football is such a team sport. It didn't matter how much I tried to win. I couldn't win by myself. It was a team game. And so that was really frustrating. Um, and then in the NFL, I mean, I had a wild journey. So I got drafted in the fourth round, which was one of the best moments of my entire life. Just a dream come true. Um, do you remember that call? Do you remember like the TV? Like what was going on? Yeah, it was a funny story. I, so I thought I was going to get drafted uh, in the third round to the Broncos, the 80th pick. They're like really set on drafting me. And I had a really good relationship with the O-line coach. And he was like, hey, we're going to take you high. We're rebuilding the offensive line. And then it was a real disappointment when their pick came and they ended up drafting another center. 
And so it was just like this big like slap in the face. I was like, are you kidding me? They said I was going to. Did you have like a draft party and like all. Yeah. So I had a bunch of friends and family over. I was at my house in California and the way they had it then, I don't know how they do it now, but they had the Thursday night was the first round prime time. And then the Friday night was second and third round prime time. And then Saturday morning was fourth to seventh round, kind of like the rest of the, the, the draft, you know, like the first three rounds is really where the prime time stuff was. And I was projected to be like a seventh round, you know, college free agent. And so I really had a really good draft process where I was like working my way up the boards. And so I was like, to be drafted in the third round, I was like, this is, would be huge. And then the O-line coach actually called me after that day was up and he's like, hey, I know we drafted another center, but it wasn't my decision. Like I was really wanted you, but you know, the front office and the GM wanted this other guy, but we're rebuilding our offensive line. So we're going to take you with our next pick. And so it was like hard to really believe that, but I was excited. And so the next morning I woke up and it was West Coast. So like the draft started at like 7 a.m. So I woke up and I was watching and there was like three teams. I think it was the Bears, the Eagles, and then Denver that really were interested in me during the draft process. And so I think the the Eagles came up and the Bears came up and they both didn't draft me. And so I had like 15 or 16 picks until the Broncos were going. So I was like, okay, like I can relax, see, see when their next pick comes up. So I went, decided to go to the bathroom. So I went to take a shit. <laughs> and I didn't have my phone with me. And so I'm sitting there taking a shit, just like relaxing, you know, not not sure when I'll get drafted. And all of a sudden, my my parents have this caller ID that like says the person that's calling like out loud. And so it starts ringing and it says, Atlanta Falcons calling, Atlanta Falcons <laughs> calling. And I was like on the toilet, like, oh, shit. And so like I get off the toilet real quick. I run over to my phone and there's like all these missed calls. And so I'm like, oh, shit. And so I end up answering the phone and it's the the GM for the Falcons, Thomas Dimitrov. And he's like, hey, man, he's like, we've been trying to reach you. I'm like. Yeah, yeah, my bad. <laughs> I was taking a shit, and so I almost missed my 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 draft day like pick, and <laughs> so it's a pretty funny story. But yeah, then they're like, you know, we want to take you with the hundred seventeenth pick of the draft. Do you want to come play for Atlanta? And it was just a huge surprise because Atlanta didn't really show any interest in me during the whole draft process. And they ended up drafting me. I talked to the head coach, the GM, the player personnel guy, and then Thomas and. Yeah, it was just a huge moment, like super stoked. Finally got taken off the board and it was fourth round was was good. I mean, I think I was slotted. The signing bonus was like 470 grand, which, you know, I had like $500 in my account at the time. So just a huge moment for me and my family. And then whole different story when I actually showed up to play and just like how competitive it is. Like playing at a school, being the best player on every team I'd ever played on all of a sudden going in and having to compete with the best in the world just at practice, you know, and I played at a small school. So I played against like a top probably talent NFL kind of caliber player, maybe three or four times a year. And then I was playing against the best in the world every day at practice, uh, really challenged me in a lot of, a lot of ways. So I played my whole first year as a backup, which is another thing. Like I, I went to UNLV because I wanted to start right away. I didn't want to sit on the sidelines because if I was on the sidelines, I felt like I wasn't actually a part of the team because I wasn't contributing. So played my whole first year as a backup and it's funny my the first time I actually saw the field as a as a center the starting center who was like a 14 year vet at the time and they kind of drafted me to take his position he had this it was we we're in the red zone it was like halfway through the season it was a second down he ended up like hitting his knee and like rolling around on the ground screaming and I was like okay this is it like he blew his knee out it's my time to shine I'm gonna go in there I'm gonna start the rest of the season I'm gonna prove myself and I'm gonna have my own 14 year career right so I go out there and it's third down. Everybody's kind of like nervous. I'm like, I got this, I got this. And so take a few snaps with Matt Ryan. And then we go out there. Uh, it's third down in the red zone. It ends up being like an incomplete pass. And so we come out on the sideline. There's like two minutes left to go in the, in the second quarter. And so we get the ball back and we're about to go do a two-minute drive to go score. And I'm like down in the huddle. Like everybody's huddled around me and they're like making sure I'm good. Because like, there's a very mature, like kind of older offensive line that had been playing together for a long time. So I was in there, I was like super nervous. And all of a sudden, his name was Todd McClure. He comes running out of the locker room, like his knee was all wrapped up. And so he ends up coming back onto the field and playing the rest of the game on like a bum knee. And so I went from thinking that this guy blew his knee out to me being the starter now to just playing one play. He ended up playing the rest of the year on that bum knee. And he actually ended up playing the following year as well. And so then the second year, I uh, ended up playing at guard actually and which is which is out of position for me but you know the starting right guard i think three games in the season and i'm getting hurt so i ended up is playing to the right of the center right of the center i'm like right guard center it's like one dude over i mean you just block the guy <laughs> i mean you just like block the same big other dude no yeah well because usually so it's usually like there's five offensive linemen there's four defensive linemen so at center 
more times than not, I'm kind of a guy that's directing where everybody's blocking, like kind of the, the mental glue that's getting everybody on the same page. And I'm usually always have help. So like as a right guard, if I'm blocking this guy, the center is either helping me or helping the other guy. So there's times as a right guard where I have to block this guy one-on-one. Where at center, you're kind of always helping. So you always kind of have help. And there's some situations where you're going to be blocking a nose like one-on-one. But more times than not, and I'm an undersized center, and I'm definitely an undersized guard. But I end up playing the rest of the year at right guard. We end up going to the playoffs, played against the Giants, who ended up going and winning the Super Bowl as 2011. And uh, we kind of had a really bad game as an offense. I don't think we scored any points. I think we got a safety. So we scored like two points. That was it. We got like shut out. And so the starting center, the 14-year vet, his contract was up after the season. So I was like, okay, like he's retiring. I'm going to move over to center and I'm going to have my own 14-year career as a starting center of the Atlanta Falcons. It's going to happen. And so that was kind of my mindset going in to the offseason. And then we go into the draft that year. And it was this is the same year that Tony Gonzalez was set to retire. So we were actually, everybody thought we were going to draft a tight end with our first pick to replace him. And one of my good buddies who was the third round or the third string tight end, actually, he was a younger guy with me. Uh, he was all worried. He's like, man, they're going to draft a tight end. I'm going to lose my job and like all this stuff. Like, God, and I'm like, dude, just calm down. It's going to be good. You're going to be good. And so we all go watch the draft together. And then all of a sudden, like five minutes before it's our turn to pick, like on Twitter, like, because if you're watching it on TV, like it comes out on Twitter, like quicker because you're real time. And so my buddy comes up to me, the same guy that was like all worried that he was going to lose his job because we we're going to draft a tight end. He's like, dude, guess what? I'm like, what? He's like, we drafted a center. And I was like, what? And like my heart dropped. And then sure enough, I look on the TV and we basically drafted the number one center in the draft with that pick. And so it was just like the rug was ripped out from under me. Like I thought I was going to be the starting center. And obviously if they draft a guy that high, they plan on putting him in there. And so all of these like stories in my head of like, man, I just felt so betrayed by the team. And like nobody communicated that with me. And so the following year, my third year, I basically went into the tank and was like so depressed and like upset and like all these stories around why they did this to me. And I was just like pointing the finger, playing the victim, ended up barely making the team, basically didn't even dress the entire year. Like I didn't, I I wasn't even a backup. I was like an inactive player and I was just really like in a bad place. And like it was showing up with my play in practice and my attitude was really bad. Ended up going into, we were like really good that year too. I think we ended up being 13 and three. And I think week 16 or 17, I ended up actually getting suspended for taking Adderall. So I failed a PED test, which is an automatic four-game suspension. So on top of me, like having all this stuff go on, I ended up getting popped for Adderall, got suspended for four games. And so when I came back from that, the coaches basically called me into the, into the office. And this is like a week before we were about to be the number one seed and going into the playoffs and have a chance to like basically take it to the Super Bowl. Called me up in the front office and I kind of knew what was happening. They were going to cut me. And so I was sitting across from the head coach, Mike Smith, and the GM, Thomas Dimitrov, and they're like, Joe, we're going we're gonna to release you. And during that time, the four games I was suspended, they were able to bring in another guy from the practice squad, from the Saints, I think. And so they basically said, like, you know, this guy that came in, like, we were going to stick with him, and we're going to cut you. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, and in that moment, you know, that whole year, I was kind of like pointing the finger of like, you know, this coach doesn't like me. This coach isn't giving me a chance. Like, screw this guy. Like, I'm better than this guy. All of these things. And then in that moment, I was just filled with so much regret because I knew that the team was going to continue on and nobody was really going to care that I was on the streets. And the only person that really knew I could have given more to, you know, make my dream a reality was me. And so all of this regret hit me and, and I ended up um, speaking my mind for the first time. And I was like, listen, if the starting center got hurt in the playoffs, would you trust? that guy to go take his spot or would you trust me and they thought about it for a sec and they're like i guess we'll have to trust the other guy i was like okay and so they end up i go through the whole cutting process it took like 10 minutes i went to the 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 trainers they like signed me out i turned all my equipment in and i was finally signing all the paperwork and then the guy that i was signing the paperwork got a got a call and he's like it's thomas they want you to go back into the office they have something to say and they're like hey we thought about what you said and we're going to keep you on the roster as the 53rd man and you're gonna have to like work your way back up and i was just so grateful for the second chance and you know two weeks later we were playing the the seahawks in the playoffs and i hadn't dressed the entire year and that for that game i was actually the backup because of what i something i said obviously resonated with them as like if someone got hurt who would they trust in there the next year like i had the best off season of my life like i was really refocused and didn't really 
I wasn't waiting for an opportunity no longer. Like I showed up every day to do what I had to do, to work my ass off, to do everything I could to see the field. After that year, the, the center finally retired. So it was me and that top center that they drafted were competing for a starting job. And I outplayed him all through training camp, like busted my ass. Everybody was coming up to me, like all the scouts and all the, even my teammates were like, man, you're like really balling out, like playing well. And he was the first, you know, practicing with the first team. I was practicing with the second team. And I just, you know, it was, it was an open competition. They made it seem like all a training camp. And then week one comes and I'm like expecting someone to like come up to me and be like, hey, like either he won the starting job or you won the starting job. But nobody said anything. It was just like we went into the season and he was just the starter. And so I was like, what the fuck, man? Like nobody's even going to give me the respect of like, hey, like this is kind of how we handled the competition. Like he won, you didn't win. No, no reason why or anything. They kind of just went into the season. And instead of kind of going in the tank and playing that same kind of victim mentality that I had the year prior, I was like, you know, I'm just going to keep showing up. Although it really hurt and I felt kind of betrayed again. I was like, I'm just going to keep showing up, working my ass off. And this is my fourth year. So it was my contract year. So I knew after that I would end up uh, going somewhere else and getting a fresh start because I had this like up and down career with the Falcons. I was like, I just want a fresh start so I can go like prove myself to someone else. And so I was like, just keep my head down. Once this year's up, my contract will be up. I'll be able to go somewhere else. And so I just kept working, kept working. And then finally with like six or seven games left, they end up, that guy was playing really bad and he started playing so bad that they came up to me one week and they're like, hey, Joe, we're going to give you a chance to start. And I think our record was like four and six or something at the time. And so we were just kind of out of the playoffs. We're like, let's see what you got. So I go end up going and playing the final like six or seven games of my contract. And I end up balling out and playing really well. And uh, so I went into free agency and I was super stoked about the opportunity to get you know a chance to play on a different team. And the Falcons, like when free agency, the way free agency works is the only team that can really talk contract extensions for you is the team you're on until free agency actually starts, which is like three months later in the spring and so went to vegas to go train and the falcons actually offered me like a minimum deal it was like a sixty thousand dollar signing bonus um like half a million dollars a year like just basically like kind of a slap in the face of like we'll give you another chance and i was like no like i'm gonna go somewhere else and get you know actual good money and so they're like all right so they stopped contract talks and i just trained and was waiting for the opportunity and then um ended up the colts were gonna you know fly me out to see them on the first day of free agency right and i was like super stoked and the falcons found out and so since the falcons found out they're like oh shit joe actually might get another chance and he might leave our team so they ended up coming back and actually offered me more money and so just because another team i mean that's the way free agency works right it's like this bidding war and so they can get you for really low until another team wants you and then it's like okay kind of put your money where your mouth is so they end up offering me from a $60,000 signing bonus to a two-year, $6 million deal. So I got a $2 million signing bonus. And so I was like super stoked to like leave Atlanta and have a fresh start, but they ended up giving me this money. And so I was like, okay, I'll come back. And that fifth year, I finally won the starting job. They gave me starter money. And I was like, worked all four years and finally got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm the opening day starter. Finally earned the starting job at center. Gonna have my career like let's do this thing, and uh, four games into that season, I end up blowing my right knee out. Can you get a fucking break? Uh, you know, this is a positive, optimistic show. It's like you bring us up, you take us down. I know. Well, that's the thing is like it's so many lessons, right? So many challenges, so much adversity, and it taught me so much about who I am. So I end up blowing my knee. I was like an eleven month recovery. End up getting the surgery. It was like one of the most challenging years. Like trying to come back from that and trying to like relearn how to use my leg and. It was an 11-month recovery. Training camp the next year started. It was like nine months into it. So they kind of eased me back in. At that time, the whole coaching staff had got fired because we had another down year. And so that was when Dan Quinn came in and Kyle Shanahan and this new zone scheme offense, which I'm a smaller kind of zone type center. And so they kept being like, get your knee right. You're a guy. Like they're just blowing so much smoke. Like you're a perfect fit for this offense. And so I was like super stoked. I was like, yes, I got that fresh opportunity, that new opportunity that I was so stoked about. And I, was, like, I just knew I was going to be a perfect fit for Kyle Shanahan's offense. Training camp, they kind of eased me back in. And I started as the starter, but I was only doing a couple plays of practice because my knee was still kind of bummed out. And I think it was like a week before the season started. They're like, all right, Joe, we're going to test you to see if your knee's good. And you're going to do a full day of practice. And it was like really hot. And I had just done some preseason games. My knee was kind of swollen. And I just had kind of a bad day of practice. And I didn't know it at the time, but they were all looking to that practice to basically make the decision. Are we going to stick with Joe? Or are we going to move on from Joe? 
And so I had a tough day of practice and I wasn't on like any pain pills or anything. I was just trying to push through it. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of this. Nobody communicated to me like, hey, this is your one shot. Like you got to prove yourself at this point. Like I just had to show up and they just kind of made the decision. And so I went from starting training camp as the starter, everybody thinking I'm going to be the perfect fit for this offense to the fourth preseason game, which most of the time, you know, third preseason game is where all the starters kind of, it's like a dress rehearsal. And then the fourth preseason game, all the starters kind of don't even dress really. It's like all of the rookies and people trying to make like the last couple roster spots are competing during that last game. And so I went from being the starter to that final game before the game. They're like, all right. And it kind of put the rotation in. And it was such a slap in the face because they're like, Joe, you're going to play the fourth quarter of the fourth preseason game. And so this is my, my sixth or my fifth year in the league. And I don't even think there's Maybe they're all rookies and first and second year players that are playing at that time. And I, so I went up to the coach after I was like, yo, what's going on? Like, what is up with this? Like, you know, I have a bum knee. You guys are playing me in the fourth preseason game. It's like, it was almost a slap in the face because I didn't need, like they already had a, their minds made up, right? I thought I was going to get cut. It was a possibility that I was going to get cut. And so they usually do the cuts on Friday and Saturday. And so I kind of survived the cut and I got a call on Sunday night from the O-line coach. And I'm like, hey, Joe, we're going to end up uh, going with this other guy to start. You're just going to be the backup. I was like, okay, like I've been through this before. I'm just going to keep my head down, get my knee right. And, you know, there'll be a time when I'll have another opportunity to step up. Then I go to practice on Monday morning and I'm just keeping my head down, working hard, drive home after practice. And then I get another call from one of the scouts and it's like, hey, coach wants to see you bring your playbook, which like everybody knows that means you're about to get cut. And so I end up driving all the way back to the office. They sit me down and they're like, hey, Joe, we ended up bringing a guy on off of waivers and we're going to cut you. And the thing that's fucked up about that is if I would have got cut during the Friday or Saturday, all these other rosters are kind of, there's other teams are still trying to fit their rosters and they would have been able to take me on. But since they cut me on Monday, all of the rosters were set. So there was no opportunities out there. And then I talked to my agent. He's like, yeah, we'll, we'll wait till someone gets hurt. Someone always gets hurt. We'll just be patient. Like there'll be another opportunity. And my offensive coordinator from the year before actually got the job down in Tampa Bay. And so he found out I got cut. And so he called me. He's like, hey man, like, we don't have an opportunity to start, but we need a backup guy that can play center and guard. And since I had experience with both, he's like, you can be your swing guy and plug in and, and be the backup. He's like, if no other opportunities come up, it's a good chance for you to come down here. And so in week two, I ended up going down there, signing with Tampa Bay and got there on Wednesday, ended up uh, dressing as the backup on Sunday in the Superdome, playing against the Saints. I didn't even really know a lot of my teammates' names. And the first play of the second half, the starting center rolls his ankle. And so I go out there and I had basically that two year, $6 million deal, like was like half of it was gone because they just cut me because there was no guarantee. They didn't have to pay. Didn't have to pay. And so when I signed with Tampa Bay, it was like all minimum deal because it was the only opportunity out there for me. But what I, what I did is I built in a lot of incentives, like playtime incentives that if I played and started any games, I could earn that type of money again. And so I was like, I had to play like 90% of the games in order to hit those escalators. And so I was like, okay, like it's an opportunity needs to come. and Literally the first play of the second half of that game, starting center rolls his ankle. So I go out there. Nobody really knows like who I am. And I end up going out there and balling out. And so I ended up playing like really good for the first few games. And the guy's ankle recovered and he came back and they ended up keeping me out there as a starter. And so I ended up starting the next two years all the way through. I hit all of my escalators. Oh, I couldn't deal with any more. And it's, you're still in your 20s. <laughs> so awesome. those are like the best two years of my career because I think we went nine and seven and six and 10. So we didn't make the playoffs, but it was just, it was a good opportunity for me to like really be a part of the team, be a leader on the team. Like everybody really respected me. And it was that fresh start that I was always looking for. After my seventh year, I was a free agent. This is a crazy story. My seventh year playing really well. And for the first time in my career, before the season is over, the GM reaches out to my agent and starts doing contract extension talks. And so my agent told me this and it was like three games left in the season. They're like, yeah, we, they want to extend you. And that means like they actually like you. They're going to give you starter money. You're like a part of the organization and they just want to like kind of reward you early on. So that was a really good feeling. And so I'll go into that, that first game. We're playing Sunday night football, which is national TV, like the only game that's on. And we're playing in Jerry's world, Cowboys in Texas. And there's this one play that happened that I'm pretty sure I could trace it back to this single play that cost me like probably five or six million dollars because I was playing a really good game. And this is the thing about playing offensive line is even if I dominate a guy for 60 plays, if he gets beats me on one play and does like a, a sack fumble or something, I mean, he's the hero and I'm basically looked at like I screwed up, right? 
And so there's this one play, they brought a field blitz, this nose guard kind of slaps my, my snap, my, my, uh, they call it a snake hand, but my hand that I could punch him with, with snapping the, without snapping the ball, knocks it over, swims over me, ends up sacking Jameis Winston, fumbling it, recovering it, and scoring a touchdown. We ended up losing the game. And so after that game, my agent called me. He's like, hey, they, uh, I talked to him about the contract extension, and they said that they're going to wait until after the season because they don't want you to be distracted with contract talks and all that. And so I didn't hear from them the rest of the offseason, and they didn't offer me anything until the free agent contract came up. They ended up signing me to like another minimum deal. And so I ended up playing that final year and ended up having to compete for my starting job again. And I ended up losing it for the fifth time in my career, lost my starting job. And that was when I was kind of like, I'm tired of having to prove myself. And my body was beat up and it was just a grind. So I ended up, you know, deciding that that was going to be my last year playing. So that's my career in a- I don't even know where to go. Uh, what's for dinner? So you were guard or center. How many- so there's the starter. How many teams are in the NFL? 32. And then is there always just one backup for each of these? Yeah. So there's only, so there's five starting positions as offensive linemen, and there's only seven linemen that dress. So there's actually two backups for five positions. That's why when I went to Tampa, they're like, we need a guy that can play center and guard because the backups need to play multiple positions because there's only so many roster spots. I guess I was just tripping out on that. There's only more or less, what, 100 jobs available in the world yeah i mean there's 32 starting centers and 32 backups 64 so it's 64 out of the world yeah i think it was my sixth or seventh year i was playing in tampa and it was a practice and i remember this specific play when i was blocking and then Jameis winston threw this like 50 yard pass downfield dime ball to mike evans and he like went up and like mossed the cornerback and had like a one-handed catch and it was like the most incredible catch i've seen a lot of good catches and i was just like oh my god and i looked around i was like that did anybody see that and everybody's just kind of walking around like it wasn't that big a deal and i was like man and then i like remember like oh yeah of course like these are the best players in the world and then i like realized oh i'm playing with these best players in the world and it was like this really deep recognition that i was one of the best in the world and i had finally arrived but I had such an up and down career. It was never, I never really had time to really sit back and appreciate how far I've come because when you're in that competitive of an environment, you're constantly having to prove yourself and prove that you belong and you're showing up and you don't have really time to sit back and be like, yeah, I'm one of the best. And now that I'm done playing, I look back on it and it's like, holy shit, I played eight years in the NFL. The average is only three years. Most guys don't play that long. And like through all of the the ups and downs of my career and like continuing to you know, most guys lose their starting job and they're out of the NFL. Like I lost my starting job five times and I kept working my way back and all the adversity and just, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I miss was being that good at something, like one of the best in the world at what I did. And I don't think it really, the actual physical part of it translates as much to <laughs> much else. I mean, I'm, I was one of the best in the world at keeping someone from getting from point A to point B. I mean, that could be like a new reality TV show. <laughs> I get by Joe. <laughs> I guess I could be like a bodyguard. Like, yeah, I mean, you can't do guns, only if they're trying to get by you. I, yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> not not Just, much good against a gun. Man, so much on there. So much there, dude. So much there. What a journey. Yeah, it was a wild journey. And then, you know, when I was done playing, like I, I knew it was going to be my last year playing. I was really ready for kind of what life had in store for me next. I always wanted to be a coach until about my sixth year playing. And then I realized I'm kind of footballed out. Like I played enough in the NFL. Like. I realized how difficult it would be to be a coach and I wanted to challenge myself in new ways. And that's where the, the idea of getting into business really sprung. And I thought it'd be so cool. Like the idea of creating something out of nothing and like birthing an idea into reality. And so I got started diving into entrepreneurship and business books and like reading everything, trying to learn, learn, learn. And, uh, you know, all the books, they all say the same thing. Like you have to just start, like, there's no real secret to it. You just have to learn and go and the good thing that has helped me in that journey into entrepreneurship is how to handle failure, right? The faster you fail, the faster you learn. I think that's a big thing that people get lost is they're like scared of failure. But in football, I mean, I had to handle failure every single time, like, you know, 60 plays in a game. If I got beat, I had to like overcome that and step up and like the, the game went on, right? And so those are some, some pretty big lessons. But then my final year, I knew it was going to be my last year, and I'm really grateful for that because I think a lot of athletes, their careers are over before they're ready, whether it's injury, getting cut, you know, just kind of fizzling out, and they continue to try and, like, get their way back in, right? Very few guys, like, retire on their own terms. I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity, and I'm grateful that I knew that that was going to be my last year. So I was able to, like, be very present with it and very 
enjoy every moment, you know, because usually it's so challenging that you're just like, oh, I can't wait till the season's over so I can go and experience the off season. But I knew it was in my last year, so I kind of just soaked it all in. And then really surprised that when it was all over, I played my final game. It's like three weeks after my final game, it like all hit me. I was like, oh man, this is going to be the last time. Like I'm never going to be able to play football again. Like it's over. And I felt this like real physical void in my heart. It was like, and I went through a big breakup at the time as well. I was engaged. So basically went from like creating this whole life for myself and living out this childhood dream of playing in the NFL. I had the woman I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my life with. And like all of a sudden it was just all gone in the rear view mirror. And I was just like, what do I do now? And so that's when I made the decision to kind of figure out who I was without this thing that kind of I built so much of my identity around. And so gave away all my stuff I owned to charity. I bought a van, rescued a dog. And that's when I traveled the country for like a year and a half on this road trip that just completely changed my life. So coming back to high school, I was actually still curious because and one of the things we, we were reading about, it was your brother did football and he was like, eh, but then you did it and you're like, I love this. Yeah. So a lot of people in business are like, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be the best in it or I want to be the best in this, this activity. What do you think led you to get into it versus others? Because there's other six foot three big dudes, but not all of them make it to this elite level. So I guess I was curious, is there anything that you did that you think helped bring you there? Yeah, I don't know what the initial draw to play football was because... When I was in junior high, I was going into high school, I, like, I was like, I want to go play football or try out for football. And I asked all my friends at the time, like, you guys want to go out for the team with me? And they're like, no, like, we'll get destroyed. Like, we don't want to go do that. Like, you're crazy. So none of my friends really wanted to do it. My brother, who was two years older than me, he would come home every day his freshman year because he was on the football team. And he was literally like, he would cry to my mom, like, I hate it. You know, one of the lessons there is my mom didn't let him quit. She's like, you don't have to play next year, but you're not going to quit in the middle of the season. And I remember watching that and I was like, uh, that was a big lesson kind of indirectly that I watched. It was like, if you, if you commit to something, then you're going to see it through. But it even it was so difficult for him. So when I went out for the team, like I was really didn't really know what to expect. I just knew it was really difficult, really challenging, really hard. And I remember the first day I went out there, I came home and I was like, I love this. Like, this is exactly what I want to do. And you know, I didn't know what the positions were. I didn't watch a lot of football when I was younger. I remember coming home after the first day and I was like, Dad, what, what position should I go out for? And kind of talked about it. And he's like, you should be a linebacker. I was like, okay. So I went out to be a linebacker. And then the following day, because the coaches are like, go, go get in line to what position you think you want to play. And I remember getting in the linebacker line. And the coach came up to me. He's like, hey, you know, we think you'd be better at the offensive and defensive lines if you want to go over there. I was like, okay. And so I went and played offensive and defensive line. And the funny story with that is like, I've always, I was the kind of offensive lineman that always desired to be like the star. And there's not a lot of glory in offensive line. You know, we pave the way and the glory follows. And so I always wanted to know what it would be like to, to be the guy that scored the touchdowns and got all the attention. And um, so I would always like try and, you know, play linebacker. And actually my sophomore year when I was playing on JV, I got an opportunity to play linebacker, which was like probably the funnest time of my entire career because I was just, I just loved it so much. I ended up getting like a couple interceptions and playing really well. But yeah, I just happened to be really good at offensive line. I can't name two offensive line people. Like name, name quarterbacks in the NFL, name running backs, name the wide receivers, maybe even linebackers. You can pretty easily. Yeah. Joe Hawley, who's another one? Who's number two? Yeah, there's a few, like a few offensive linemen that are like kind of big names, but yeah, most of the guys you don't really hear about. I think a lot of us have dreams, but the mega reality, you know, obviously is part of the challenge and life happens as well. Were you thinking like, hey, I'm gonna make NFL and you're like, this is the only thing I'm gonna do and, and just dead set on it from high school? Yeah, I mean, to, that's the funny thing is with what I'm doing now too is, you know, they, they talk about the, the odds of making it to the NFL. I think it's like 215 out of 100,000 high school seniors will get an opportunity to play in the NFL. It's like less than 0.2% or something. And so the odds are just astronomical, but you have to be so singularly focused on that dream to make it. And so like throughout my career, they're like, hey, be prepared when you're done playing. You have to have a backup plan because not everybody makes it. But I truly believe that the guys with a backup plan don't make it because it's so hard and so challenging you have to be so focused that if you have a backup plan it's going to kind of take you away from the focus it's going to take to get to that level because it is so hard but it's a process too like you don't just wake up when you're in your 20s and say oh i want to try and play in the nfl right it's like something that you have to go through like and it, very rarely i mean there's guys that played basketball in college and then they transferred and got an opportunity to play in the nfl like i think antonio gates is one and played tight end and then would there be the tackle in an offensive tackle in Tampa that was a basketball player and then he ended up 
transferring over and playing, but it's very rare. Like you have to go through and start as, you know, go to high school, then get a scholarship, play in college, and then get drafted. And so it's just like process of always getting to the next step. And so in high school, I was like, yeah, of course I want to play in the NFL, but the next step is, okay, I want to get a scholarship to college. And so I finally get a scholarship to college. And I remember even going and seeing my my guidance counselor and she's like, you know, what kind of college do you want to go to and prepare for for college? And we want to make sure that you have the right kind of credits. And I was like, I want to go to, and this is in California, so the universities, you need to like have, you know, certain GPA and all that stuff. And I was like, I'm going to get a scholarship for football. So I want to make sure I'm eligible to play even at the top universities. And she, I remember her saying like, you know, getting a scholarship is really hard. You know, like you think you're going to get a scholarship and she kind of like laughed in my face. And I was just like, I just knew that I was good enough to get it. So I'm getting a scholarship, getting a lot of publicity and looks. And I got like four or five different scholarships to different schools, but then going to college. And then when you get to college, like, okay, now I want to become a starter in college. And then once you become a starter in college, it's like, okay, now I want to try and become all conference or all American or whatever it is and try and get on the radar of these NFL teams. And then for me playing at UNLV, it was a small school. So I didn't even think I was going to get invited to the combine, which is a huge step for me to get some publicity in front of all of these NFL teams, especially at a small school. And when I finally got that letter that I was getting invited to the combine, that was like a huge moment for me. Cause I remember watching the combine when I was younger on TV and it was like this big thing. So that was a big step. And when I got invited to the combine, I knew, okay, I have a real chance of getting drafted or at least getting an opportunity. But it's still just this like this dream that you're just working towards. And then when I finally got drafted, I was like, okay, I did it. But then that's when the real journey began, obviously, of what I just told you of how difficult it is once you get there to actually stay in there. And they're always looking for the next step. Like I was a backup. I wanted to play. I wanted to be a starter. And then when I became a starter, I was like, okay, now I want to get a second contract and get some real money. And then once I do that, it's like, okay, I want to, I want to make a Pro Bowl. And then I want to win a Super Bowl. And so, like I said earlier, there's just no opportunity to sit back and feel like you really arrived because there's always more to be had. And that's kind of the journey that you go on. And it wasn't until I was finally done playing when I was able to look back and be like, oh, wow, I really did it. Good for you, man. Great for you. Yeah, thank you. I think that the thing you said earlier really resonates, like no backup plan. Yeah. Right? That always, you know, there, there are many, I can't probably, I don't know, millions, but hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of stories of the guys were like, yeah, I kind of wanted to do it. I was good in football. I went to Berkeley with Aaron Rodgers and Marshawn Lynch at the same time, which was a wild time to be there and see them. And uh, one of my good friends at the time was, was on a scholarship for football. And in the preseason, he got injured. And this guy was the top in the state in Delaware. He was a he was scholarship for, I think, uh, either D-line or linebacker and never played again. Yeah. If I had a dollar for every time someone was like, ah, oh, yeah, I could have made it. But like every single player that isn't in an NFL locker room has some kind of story of challenge or adversity that they had to overcome to get to that point you know it's like it just i just shared my entire story it's like if at any one of those moments i was like oh like okay i tried and i didn't make it but i had to keep pushing myself and it takes such a special mindset and there's i mean there's a little bit of luck in that there's a lot of stories of guys that you know depending on where you get drafted if you never get an opportunity to play you kind of just fizzle out right like you have someone in front of you gets hurt like there's a guy that was a a third string center free agent had really no like there was a lot better players out there but it was one of my years and he was probably not going to make the team but then the starting center got hurt in training camp and then the second string guy who was playing ended up getting hurt as well so he went from barely making the team to starting a few games in the nfl and because he started all these teams saw him and was like oh we can trust him because he actually went out there and he performed okay he wasn't like blowing anybody away and so he ended up having like a five-year nfl career because of that if that first starting center didn't get hurt in training camp, then they wouldn't have had a roster spot for him. He probably would have never played. So there's a little bit of that luck involved in the opportunity, but it's about being prepared for when that opportunity is presented to take advantage of it. That's huge. I guess, what's the mindset for everyone in their own parallels? You know, if it's not the NFL, I'm trying to think if I'm interested in being like an, you know, a content creator, or if I'm interested in running an e-commerce store, or even just be, you know, interested in working somewhere. What do you think some of that mentality that, that you that you like maybe mottos or mantras or things that you thought of all along that kind of helped? Yeah, I think what I've learned is that anybody can do anything they put their mind to. And maybe the NFL is a little bit more challenging, but I mean, the cool thing about what I've <laughs> learned getting into entrepreneurship now is, you know, in the NFL, I kind of got to the pinnacle of where I was going to get to. There was a ceiling, like a natural ceiling that I couldn't just break through. But now that I'm done with that, like the only in the real world in entrepreneurship, the only ceiling that we have is the one that we create around ourselves and through our own beliefs of why we can't. And I think the only real failure is when people stop going. I think if you 
continue on the journey and learn how to handle failure and learn how to fail as fast as you can so that you can learn the lesson and grow from it, then you just have to keep going. And usually right when you want to stop and quit because you think it's not going to work, if you just, that's probably right the moment when you just need to push just a little bit further and everything kind of starts working out. So I think it's really about, you know, handling failure and visualizing success and not taking, you know, no for an answer. Just keep pushing, pushing, learning, learning, growing, growing. And if there's somebody out there, you know, the cool thing about the world we live in is we have access to so many people and their like personal stories. And if we want to become something, we find somebody else that has done that already. And we look at them, look at their story, look at the habits they have, you know, what they do on a daily basis, and we start implementing those habits and becoming that, then that thing that we want will find us. But so many people, it's like they try and they want to have the thing. And so they got to do, they think they have to do all this stuff to get to that point. But if you become, like, if you want to be a billionaire, for example, and you don't have any of the habits of a billionaire, how do you expect to become a billionaire? So it's like, you have to learn how to become a billionaire in order to find your way into that position right with the, the no ceiling how, how can everyone experience that there's no ceiling or practice that i like what you just said i really like what you just said it's like well everyone who's a billionaire is doing x and you're doing y it could happen but you probably need to be doing some of the x stuff if that's really what you want to be accomplishing i like that yeah this, i mean it's really about questioning the stories of why you can't like if you think you can't do something then you're not going to be able to right? But if you think you can, then you can. I mean, it's, it really starts with that really core belief system and structure first. And I think you grow through experience. You can't just like become something. You have to continue to, to try and learn and grow. And like anybody that's found any type of success, it's, you know, what I've learned in entrepreneurship and all the people I look up to, it's like anybody who's found success has some kind of story that they've just handled failure more times than the other people. Like they've actually, the most successful people have actually failed more than everybody else. I don't think people like look at it that way. It's like they, they, something doesn't work and they're like, oh, I'm just not good enough at it. And it's like, what did it come to teach you? Like when I first got out of the league and I really wanted to get into business, I ended up getting into business with this guy and I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember all the books I read, like I talked about earlier, I was like, you just have to start, you have to try, you have to learn. And so I dove right in with this guy and he had this, this nut butter that was really a good product and I was keto at the time and there wasn't a lot of keto snacks and it was like this really clean uh, macadamia nut butter and I was like, oh, this is great. Like, let's, let's dive in. So I ended up like investing in it and going on this journey with them and it ended up costing me like over a hundred grand and he had no idea what he was doing. I had no idea what I was doing and I like, just dove in and I could look at that and be like, oh, what the fuck was I thinking? And luckily I had enough money where I could like kind of take that kind of hit. It didn't affect me financially too much, but it's still a hundred grand. And what I've decided to do is look at that and the lessons that it provided. And without diving in and making all those mistakes so quickly, I wouldn't be where I'm at, where I've learned so much about business, how to work with people, what to expect, how to create, how to market, how to build a product, like all this stuff that goes in. And I just understood like all of those <laughs> business books I was reading, was like, oh, I get it now. Like you have to start and make the mistakes in order to get the experience that actually turns into wisdom. I think what's crazy about, you know, your NFL career, now you're on your encore career, third career, second or third, is that one, it's crazy your salary's public. Mm. That's just wild, right? Because that's a very taboo subject in our society, but it's like yours is in the news. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's definitely interesting because um, people know that you have cash. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, you're not a household name yet and that's your interest. But even a person who's not a mainstream NFL player, still it's public at seventeen million. I think is the the salary generated for me. Yeah, I think it's thirteen million. Oh, where'd the four million go? People look at thirteen million too, and they don't realize. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe six million, and then it costs me a hundred, hundred fifty grand to live each year. Plus, I'm paying three percent to my agent fees, and so like my they, you know look at thirteen million, like oh, set for life. But in reality, it's like four or five million, right? like that. And then depending on if guy, this is like all the stories about guys going broke, if they're actually good with their money, you know, they have that much, but it's hard for, you know, a 21, 22, 25 year old to be making a million dollars a year and not go buy some nice toys, buy a big house, you know, pay for all these experiences. And then all of a sudden that million dollars is not coming in anymore and they have to create a job for 40 or 50 grand a year. And it's like, oh shit, what did I do? And that's another thing about my journey is I didn't really start educating myself on finances and how money works and the system works until I started like my second year when I started, I got that $2 million signing bonus. 
I was like, okay, like I got some real money now. I need to kind of educate myself on where this money is going. And that's when I started to really learn for myself what my money was doing, how to get money to work for me and how, you know, if I make the right investments, like and create this passive income stream that that money can actually pay me money. So I don't actually have to work. And I don't think a lot of people educate themselves on that. I mean, I found it so fascinating. We'd have these meetings talking about our benefits. And in the NFL, we have one of the best 401k plans where if you put in up to $18,000, the team will just match it. So if I put $18,000 into my 401k, they put in $18,000 too. So it's literally free money. And then that obviously compound interest throughout, you know, when I tell I'm 55 or 65, when I can take it out, I mean, huge, right? Like four or five, 600 grand, potentially millions, depending on how long you play. And it was so fascinating. Some of the players are like, yeah, but that's, that's my money. I don't want to just not have it for 30 years. It's like, first of all, you're making minimum a half million dollars a year. So that $18,000, they take it out of your check. You're not even going to realize it's gone. And they're giving you $18,000 free. And then it's going to sit there and it's literally going to compound interest. It's going to be a, like, you know, two or three times what it's worth now. And they just couldn't comprehend that. And it's like, wow, like that's why some people are broke because they can't understand this concept that like money is really just an energy source and you can actually create this thing that is actually paying you money if you save it instead of just buying something that's kind of superficial. What did your parents do for a living? Uh, my dad's business manager at uh, kind of like an oil company. I forget which one he works at, but he buys and trades gas. And then my mom was kind of like, a, she worked odd jobs. How was that experience when you started getting a lot of money with your family? I had to work through my own stories of money and it was actually quite difficult. One of the things I had to work through with my parents was this this feeling of guilt, right? Like my mom especially, she would always make me feel guilty like, you know, you made all this money, like your your brothers and your brother and your sisters didn't have the same opportunity as you. And she made me feel like I was just like lucky that I made all this money. And, you know, making that much money when you're that young, there's this story of like, okay, I feel responsible to take care of people that are like less fortunate to take care of my family. And I think that's another part of what most people, they go broke because, you know, I'm really grateful that I, I grew up in like kind of a middle, upper middle class kind of neighborhood and situation. But some guys that play in the, in the league, you know, they're coming from the inner cities, very less fortunate. And when they make all this money, they feel responsible. to they, they made it. So they have to kind of take care of all their friends, all their family and help them get out of their situation too. So they feel responsible for paying for everybody. And I can definitely resonate with that because I had a little bit of that feeling on a, on a definitely on a different scale and having to work through my own stories of what that is. And you know, I think, like you said, f- money is such a taboo thing in our culture. And I don't really understand why so much. It's like understanding that money is just energy. It's not even a real thing. Like it's paper. Now it's just numbers on a screen. And so like someone has numbers on a screen and someone else has less numbers on a screen. It's like, you know, and I find it fascinating too. Like you look at all the the way the world is, like the two things I've learned that are the most important to interact as adult with the world is financial literacy and emotional intelligence. And these are two things that they don't teach in school. Like, how do you not learn about money if that's the one thing that's going to help you like navigate being an adult? And it's still such a taboo thing. And then emotional intelligence, they don't teach us how to handle our emotions or how to interact with people in like a mature way. And so it's like, you look at that, you're like, well, what's, what's the system we're creating with that, you know? How did you resolve or what, where did you end up with the, the family, you know, interrelationships with money? It's still challenging too, like trying to talk to my dad because I've learned so much about investing and how money can work for us. And, you know, my dad's coming up on retirement. And so I try to talk to him and it's just like this generational thing too, but it's, it's like, Hey, like, you know, what's, what's your idea with retirement? And he's thinking like, he needs this arbitrary number to finally retire. And this is a story, like kind of an old paradigm story that people think they need to hustle and work and grind until they're 65 when they can finally retire. And then they'll be able to do whatever they want. And then they're like kind of broken down and old and they're like, wait, I wasted my entire life for this thing. And like they lost purpose. They don't really have anything to do. And so my dad's kind of dealing with that right now. And I'm like, he's like, I need to work another three years until I have enough money to retire. And I think it's so fascinating that they don't actually like critically think about, you know, that they think they need to work for this arbitrary number, but they don't know how long they're going to live. They don't know how long they're going to need their money to last for them. They don't. And like, I try to talk to him about like, investing and like what's his strategy and all this stuff and he just has a lot of resistance to all of that and so you know i've worked through my own story of money through just edu- educating myself and what money is and you know having really an abundant mindset like knowing that i can create money and wealth and you know it's this is this energy source that kind of flows and i think when we 
show up and talk in a scarcity mindset, like money it has a trouble finding us, right? But if you're abundant, it really comes down to your story and interacting with reality in a different kind of way. Honestly, there's times, man, where I still feel scarcity with money. I don't have a good answer for it. I definitely think it's probably some influence with my family. Like my parents grinded. Yeah. Like they are in the generation that worked their fucking asses off. They didn't, they complained a lot. My mom did. <laughs> and then like got to 60, had enough or 50s. And then they, they were pieced out. I mean, I find it fascinating too. My mom, they live 30 minutes south and I'm so grateful because I've been able to reconnect with them and like in a deep way. Every single time I hang out with them, they talk like talk about how much things cost. You know, this costs this or this costs this or I can't do this because of this. And it's that story reinforces the story right yeah i mean i think something that literally the past two weeks i've been really heavy on for myself is just why am i jealous or why am i feeling scarce like there's not enough women out there there's not enough houses out there there's not enough money there's like this person has that and then it was really like oh wow it's because i don't feel good about what i have mm. and then i started just reflecting it's like well what do you really don't have man and then just trying to like unpack each of these kind of boxes and i was like I have everything i mean that's the that's the abundant mindset that we're all trying to get to right but it's this consumer culture that self-perpetuates they're feeding on the void that we have within ourselves and they our consumer culture is like oh fill that void with this thing and then you get that thing and you're like well that didn't really work and it's like well fill it with this thing or this thing and, it, and that's why i think gratitude is kind of the the secret sauce that i use because when you're grateful for what you have it kind of drops you out into the present moment it, it kind of keeps you from focusing on the things in the future that you want to create and it's when you live from a place of gratitude you're full like you're grateful for everything you've had, you're grateful for the experiences, you don't, you're not really missing anything. And so if you can live in a state of gratitude, there's nothing that you're, you don't really need. And it's really, it's about focusing on not what you're lacking, but what you already have. And I think that's just a subtle shift. That's a really kind of simple way to kind of navigate those waters. How did you feel when you got to the NFL? I think there's a lot of times for most people, including myself, where when I finally get this thing, money, house, woman, man, I'll feel good. So I, I did think earlier, I was like, wow, when you finally got to the field on your first day and it says, you know, Holly on your back shirt and you're like walking into the, uh, what's the Falcon Super? No, that's not the Superdome. Uh, the Georgia Dome was the first one and they built the new one, which is the Mercedes Benz Dome, I think. Did you think you'd finally feel great or what was the feeling on that when that finally happened? Yeah, it was just one of those things that, and there's a little bit of an imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong here with all these amazing players? And having to prove myself. I think there's two aspects that really made me so good at football. And one of them was this imposter syndrome that I felt like I wasn't good enough and I had to go out there and prove myself every day. But I can't live in that state because then I'll never feel like I really belong and I'll fizzle out. So there's this other side of me that was, I believed I was the best player on the field and I was really confident and like nobody could beat me. And so I was like kind of navigating both these two stories of like, I don't really belong but I'm also the best player in the field. And I don't think without either of those, I would have made it as far as I did because if I didn't feel like I could beat the guy next to me, I wouldn't have, right? You have to believe in yourself enough. But then if I would have lived in that place of like, I'm the best in the field, I wouldn't have shown up and continued to work and prove myself. And so I think every really good athlete has these kind of two sides of the story that they're trying to navigate to try and really find the balance within that to, to show up on the field. But I mean, it is a rat race, right? One of the moments, I mean, the reason I ended up giving away all my stuff and kind of figuring out who I was without all of this stuff I had accumulated. At one point, I think I was making two, two and a half million dollars in a year. You know, myself at 18, if I would have just transported into that, I'd be like, holy shit, I made it like two and a half. But when I was there, I was looking at the guy next to me who was making $7 million a year. And I was like, this guy's not that much better than me. Like I should be making that much money. And so I had this visceral experience of there's always someone making more. There's always something I don't have. If I look out in the world, there's always someone that is kind of ahead of me. And so if I keep focusing on that, it's, that's the cycle that I'll never end up getting to a point where I feel content. Like part of the decision of walking away from the league and I really wanted to understand was what would life be like without all this stuff that I've accumulated? You know, and I watched this show, um, The Minimalists on Netflix in like 2015, and that really inspired me to say, what would life be like with less? And so that's part of the decision I, I made of like, let me get rid of all of this stuff, buy a van and just live off the minimum and experience life without like this lifestyle that I've created of not having enough. But what if I just lived as if and I, ha I had enough and lived for the experience rather than the stuff that I've accumulated? And that had a profound impact on my life in every single way. There was a question in our office hours last week on that same vein of like, what should I do if I don't know what to do? 
And it sounds like for you with the NFL experience, you're like, all right, I've kind of finished this chapter, not really sure what's next, figuring out who is Joe. And it sounds like one of the options for you that you you took was let's remove all the the material items and then just kind of go and explore myself or literally and figuratively. Especially with what the world's going through right now, kind of collectively is there's this huge fear of the unknown, right? And so we create this comfort zone of what what's familiar, what we know, and everybody works to create a comfortable life. But then what, what happens is we start feeling kind of constricted by that comfortable life. And we know there's something more out there and we've like worked so hard to create this comfort for ourselves, but we feel trapped by it. And we're like, well, this, this isn't really it. And I think, you know, I'm really grateful that I made that decision to like kind of break down all of my comfort and go experience and dive into the unknown. And I truly believe like through that experience, I realized that the only place we can really grow is outside of our comfort zone. And so I think if people ask themselves, like, what now? What do I do? I feel kind of like lost. It's like, well, go do something that's uncomfortable. You know, on the other side of fear lies freedom. And I truly believe that the things that scare us the most is where our purpose really lies, because that's where we're going to be challenged to grow the most. And if you continue to push yourself towards and lean into your fears, you're going to realize that they're just an illusion and you're going to grow to meet the level of why that thing scared you in the first place. And once you can kind of conquer all your fears, then you come to a place where you realize that you are the creator of your reality and nothing can kind of hold you back. I guess the last thing I was curious about, I'm curious about a lot of things, but I think for today, um, team dynamics and team formation in terms of business, because the NFL, is a, you had an interesting point, like in high school, you were the star uh, and you said the team wasn't as strong and you guys didn't win. So I was curious how that's reflected in the business sense. Like what have you known about like how to you know, hire, what you're looking for in terms of people you keep around? Yeah, I think I've learned a lot about kind of culture and the, the, the energy of a culture and of a business and of like each locker room I played in, each team each year had a different energy to it. And, you know, realizing how one kind of bad energy person that complains a lot can just infect a locker room so easily. And, you know, it's fascinating, like learning all about like energy and starting my own business. And, you know, I think it's really being able to help connect people through communicating with them and like not telling them but like really understanding them on a deeper level and like where they're at and like i think that's just what i've learned with like my team that i'm building out for my company it's like treating them like equals and talking to them and getting to know like what the energy if the, if the if you're connected to energy and you feel the energy's off with an employee then being able to communicate with them and not create a story in your head around what they're going on because like maybe they're showing up and they're not you know, meeting their goals or whatever, and are their energies off? And you're like, well, well, this person just doesn't care or this, and you're creating these stories rather than like asking them what's going on. And maybe they just have something in their personal life that's like affecting them. And you asking them what it is and being able to like communicate with it can actually move that energy out of the way so that you can empower them to show. And, you know, as a leader, what I'm realizing too is it's my job to remind everybody of the vision of where we're headed. And so if their energy is off, then it's like, well, this is kind of getting in the way of where we're headed. How can we move that energy and, and come back into alignment so that we can focus on where we're headed? Yeah, it made me, when I was in Israel two years ago, they did a leadership training at a goat farm. And it was interesting, though, because uh, one of the things you're talking about leadership, it's uh, a little bit of like, how do we, where are we trying to go? So everyone knows where the vision is. And I think that's a big part of a leader and then helping people move in that direction. And at the goat farm, uh, I'm not very religious and I, don't, I haven't read the Bible very well. But I guess Moses or Jesus who moved the sheep stands in the back. So they made us move sheep, but you realize it's not in the front you stand. You actually move them from the back mm. and you're, that's how you lead. So I think there's some, there's some good lessons in that. All right, we're going over there. You guys are the, you know, going to be the ones doing it. And I'm going to do my best to kind of you know, support yeah, you from. Keep you guys in here. Let's yeah, keep, keep you going with, that way. <laughs> within that thing. And then last, last thing, was it, is it pretty cool to have your own jersey? You know, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Do you want one? Do you have jerseys? Uh, I got a bunch at the house. I'll give you one. That'd be cool. You hang it up in the office. I feel like maybe we should have that at offices. Like Cohen, Kagan, you know, like. Put your name on the back. Yeah, of like when you come to the office, they're like, coming into the office, starting at uh, Wright Marketing Associate. <laughs> have like a tunnel with the fog <laughs> coming in, like the light. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is that, uh, that's going to be wild. And is it, you know, it's funny because like my, our jobs, you know, we're content creators and, but the content's almost like, it's, we put, we do it in private and then we share it in public you're actually performing in public. Yeah. It's got to be a, a wild experience. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like, 
you know, I think a lot of people, we always used to make fun of this, like a lot of people, you know, Madden, the game Madden, you know, on Xbox and stuff. Like people think that we show up on Sundays and we just come out of the video game and we play and then we go back in the video game. But it's like, <laughs> you know, all of the work, it's a 24-7 job. And like all of the work that goes in to put that final product on the field, like, you know, as an offensive lineman, I only have like 60 opportunities during that one game. And if, like I said, if I, if I give up a sack fumble on one play, that could cost me, but the team cost me. And everybody's watching. So we got millions of fans on TV. We got the front office, the coaches, the teammates, the people in the stadium. Like everybody's kind of looking at you. And so there goes all this work into actually performing on Sundays. And it's all the work that you put in. It's like that 10,000 hour rule, right? Like I'll never forget when I was a rookie. I remember looking at that 14 year vet and he was just so good. And he was like not watching extra film, like not really. Like he, he had a family and stuff. He's like in his thirties. And so he'd go home kind of early and I would always like not understand the playbook and try trying to learn. I'm like, how does this guy do this? And it wasn't until my eighth year in the league when I had seen so much through experience and like going through so many plays, so many reps, so many reps that when I got out on the field, I could tell what the defense was doing before they even did it. And it wasn't like, because I saw, I couldn't explain to you how, but it's just like the sixth sense of like, seeing it so many times and you think about people like tom brady who's been doing it for 20 years like the reason he's so good like he literally can feel and know exactly what the defense is doing and where to put the ball before and it's like you can't teach experience you can't learn experience you have to go live life to have that experience which turns into wisdom i think that relates to anybody that you know especially you know look at young people that like want to start a podcast right because it's the cool thing to do so it's like i've done a bunch of podcasts and it's funny when like a 24-year-old kid's like, yeah, I got this podcast and I want you to be a guest on it. And we, we talked before and he's like, I want it to be more of a conversational piece and like let it flow, not really an interview. And it definitely turns into an interview because the kid doesn't have any life experience. And what makes a good podcaster is somebody that can actually hold a conversation through actually having experience to add value to the conversation. And so people are trying to put the cart before the horse. It's like, you got to go live life, earn the experience, and then you have something to share. All right, my man, dude, that was epic. That was really cool to, to hear your story. I appreciate you sharing it. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. Go give Joe some love on Instagram. It's instagram.com slash joe.holly, H-A-W-L-E-Y. And then check out his two podcasts, Life Beyond the Game and Quantum Coffee with Joe. Plus, if you're an NFL player, I know we have a bunch that listen to the show. Go to theheartcollective.com. That's H-A-R-T. And Joe can support you in your transition out of the NFL. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go play some touch football together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to... God, I have so much stuff for you to do. But if you're bored and you like getting newsletters and you want to hear from me more often, go to sendfox.com slash Noah. I send out an exclusive email just with juicy nuggets to the subscribers at sendfox.com slash Noah. Plus, if you don't have your own newsletter, go sign up for sendfox.com. It's completely free. You should build building your newsletter, especially if you have no business ideas or you want to have an audience in the future. That's sendfox.com. Finally, special shout out to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com. He does all the episode editing. He makes them sound so much better than the originals. Thank you to David Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all perform on the weekly. And finally, a special super huge shout out to every single person on the AppSumo team. 11 years we've been doing this, y'all. And we're gonna be doing them probably at least another thousand years. I appreciate every single one of you. Have a people day who's your favorite person <laughs> <laughs>